Hello and welcome to The Movable, a podcast dedicated to interviewing individuals involved in building manufacturing. I'm your host, Jared Dory. Please enjoy. I guess, well, maybe I can say your name's Morgan and you're a founder of Oxbox. I don't know what title you use, but I know that much. So why don't you just talk a little bit about Oxbox and kind of how it all started? Sure. The title thing is, I have, depends on the day what my title is. So yeah, I'm one of the two founders of Oxbox. Started 2018. The idea started a little bit before that. Our company kind of started out of frustration with the building industry, um, which I think is very common with modular building. You want to be maybe more in control of a build from start to finish, in control of weather. <laughs> so we work inside uh, rather than out in the elements and doesn't delay any projects. And so, yeah, we went from renovations before Oxbox started to building manufactured buildings and started out very small, just doing offices essentially. And then we've grown into a modular home builder. Having said that, we're really just starting the modular home side of things. So we've done living spaces, which are like studios, like, yeah, essentially small living spaces, but now it's getting into full houses. And we're approaching six years in this business. And yeah, just to answer what my title is, it's um, project manager, mostly, (laughs) but production coordinator, lead designer. We have a small team, so we're kind of, me and my partner actually are quite involved throughout the whole whole business. So Oxbox, being that it's spelled, uh, I mean, I've told you this before that I really like the name, A-U-X for Ox is auxiliary. So that'd be kind of going after this like ADU, the auxiliary dwelling unit is probably kind of like the formal term. I guess originally you said it wasn't necessarily housing but how, how did you come up with the name or do you have any story about that or that's essentially the story right there <laughs> um, <laughs> it was everything from we tossed around modern sheds modern this and that um, box and then just like ox box stuck yeah it was okay. probably like two months end of into name dropping but that one just like was just <laughs> Sounds good. So the, you had your product idea and then it, it came out of that. You know, you had your idea and then the name came out of that. Yeah, yeah pretty much. The, uh, yeah, the product started out essentially a box. We wanted to maximize what we could fit on a truck and on a property without having any restrictions like permitting, travel restrictions, height restrictions, all those things. So it, it, Essentially, it was a box, so maximizing that kind of cubic area. So when you talked about the development of Oxbox kind of being at a frustration with the construction industry, is that more, could you say, because of time, like time delays and all these different things that occur in an on-site construction project? Or like that frustration component, to have you relieved it, for one, and like what, can you dive into what those are a little bit more? Yeah, so, well, first thing in BC, there's a lot of rain, where we, like British Columbia, there's a lot of rain. And so in the wintertime, the quality of, of outcome is not as good whenever your building gets saturated. So whether you're framing a house or we're doing a foundation, everything just gets messy and wet. And then, so it takes a little longer to dry out. And that, I do know that sometimes that leaves permanent long-term damage. The other side of it is when you're working kind of all over the place doing trades or doing renovations or new builds and you're traveling a little bit, sometimes it's convenient to bring in sub-trades from that area rather than making them travel. And you just get a variety of people, variety, and sometimes you miss on quality. And that was something we felt like we couldn't control. And then the working with municipalities. And this one we weren't really prepared for, but we wanted to decrease the amount of time for inspections and permitting. 
However, that feels like it's a growing issue, not so much one that we've solved 100%. Sure, sure. I, I want to get into like um, more details about like the trades that take place in your manufacturing. But before we do that, can you just give me a little bit of your background, like kind of your personal career path of how you've ended up as a, a modular building manufacturer, if that's the right term? Yeah, um, I would call myself a framer, like a, a wood home builder <laughs> before this. And that's something I never, ever intended to do. But And I always hated it before I tried it, but I actually enjoyed it and just it seemed to click for me. And then I went from there to going back to school to learn how to draw. So uh, being a coming a drafting tech. And then did renovations. I kind of always had the approach with work is, is uh, just do it. Like, uh, not that I know everything, but I would just do it. And then kind of led to this as well. Like, so when you say yes to enough things, you get a lot of experience. And so eventually you've dabbled in all of construction without real formal education and all of it, just experience. Um, and then that transitioned into being able to kind of build entire buildings and teach other people how to do it. So I remember from a past conversation that we had, is it true that you didn't really intend on, like you weren't necessarily entrepreneurial minded or have you always been looking at business as something you wanted to do or was it just what happened because you saw this need in construction and wanted to start Oxbox? Like you you didn't start because you're like, I want to be a business owner. You start started because you saw the, the need and wanted to fill it or it's what you wanted to do? Well, it's kind of two questions. I guess the first part is I always knew I wanted to be my own boss doing what I did. I didn't know. So that led to starting my own companies. And then, do yeah, the thing about being an entrepreneur, <laughs> I, I'm not sure how you feel about this, but I don't. I feel like it's, I, I don't know what I'm doing a lot of the time. So actually, you know, when you first start, you think you know everything. And then you get into it a little further and you're like, man, I don't know anything. And then it, it, like funny story is we had a business coach right off the start. And well, a few months into it, and I like landed my business partner brought him brought him kind of introduced us and I was like, No, I don't need a coach. So I re- rejected kind of any learnings from him. And then it wasn't until we kind of failed and the first year was really tough that I was like, Maybe I should accept help and and then but yeah, you you kind of like you don't know anything. You sometimes feel like you know stuff, but yeah, being an entrepreneur, I don't know where that really started or I'm actually an entrepreneur. <laughs> right. And I think that that term can be a silly term sometimes because I don't know anyone that hasn't like accumulated some skills that then they apply to whatever business they're in. Like if they are a business owner, they don't like... I don't know anyone that just does business, if you know what I mean. Like, it's like usually you've accumulated some skills that are applicable. You see a need and you fill it. Like, I, I don't think there's just like a pure in entrepreneur because I, I think that yeah just doesn't really exist. Yeah. You have to have a skill set. Yeah. Here's one thing. I always thought everybody wanted to own their own business because I did. And then as you gather, um, see employees come and go and you learn that some people are just going to be employees their whole life. So then you realize that, man, being an entrepreneur is actually kind of rare or unique. Yeah, I'm not sure how to, without without making an employee, like they're not less, but they're just very different than an entrepreneur. They don't have that doer or, well, not all of them, but a lot of them don't have that doer or that extra push or whatever it is that makes an entrepreneur an entrepreneur. That's really interesting because that's something that I've... So I think one of the keys to, (laughs) especially when you start a business, is like ignorance is the key initially. Like when you said you don't know what you're doing, kind of if you did know everything, you probably wouldn't do it. So I think like um, I was just talking with someone about that and like I'm very unaware in the moment of how painful anything is. 
And I told him, I was like, it's kind of a blessing and a curse because the blessing part is you will do things that other people won't do. Like not, not on a criminal level or anything, but just like you're willing to maybe make sacrifices and you're just like, this is normal. Like this isn't a big deal. And then when you get on the other side of it, you're like, oh, that, that was kind of terrible now that I know better. But I think most business owners are a little bit unaware of difficulties in some capacity because, and that's what I used to think the same thing. Like everyone wants to own their own business and whatever, but it seems like, and like you use that word, like just employees and you realize I've had a lot of help in this on like how I see this is one, you live and breathe it as the employer. And so you kind of think things like the other people will also be that way. And then you find out, no, you need like training protocols and all these different things because they aren't just going to be like you and just be totally submersed in it. And something that I've really appreciated, there's kind of like a, I read these historical novels by James Clavell, and it's kind of like 16 to 1800s in when the Europeans were first like going into Japan and China. And it's really interesting, those cultures like the samurai in Japan, this is a huge tangent, but the samurai in Japan were always broke. They had the most power, but they had no money. And they look down at money and they're like, their success was in swordmanship, in like art and like how they drew the Chinese characters and poetry. And they're just like, oh, we got to get this money so we can continue being these, you know, amazing warriors. And it's like this pain. And they really look down upon like the merchants and the people that had money that were like exchanging goods. And they look down on the Europeans for the same reason, because they're like anything that's monetary, these people are super interested. And so I think that's part of our like our culture is that we're very interested in that. And like I find how money flows and works to be fascinating. But reading that has helped me understand other people that aren't business owners and that aren't fascinated necessarily by how a business works. They have other interests and they have to meet their, you know, their needs of them and their families. But yeah, business owner is kind of a actually a strange person probably overall in society. Yeah. But I'm learning more and more that like people who are willing to dive into the the grief of business ownership or the maybe rewards too of business business ownership and hire people are really the this is another tangent, but the lifeline of the economy. Like they're the risk takers. They're the ones that like you're the risk taker, you're the one that's really pushing things along which is, I didn't realize it before, but when you have employees, you start to like, oh, wow, okay. They're really depending, the government's depending on us. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's, I, I know depending. our business is small, but we've focused a lot on culture and in some ways not good, but I think we are correcting that, but we're not mean anyway. We're not mean to each other within the business. And I think like the employees that we do have that I have a, good relationship with them and they're grateful that like for what that I started the business yeah because they maybe would have no interest in it or you know whatever it is but they're like we're glad it's here because like we're enjoying it and I think there's that I think unfortunately a lot of business owners because it takes kind of that a bit of ignorance of your own like well-being like there can be some pretty awful people that own businesses because they're so focused, like they can be awful to other people. Like, and it's, I mean, that's kind of common, right? You're trying to find a workplace that's like a decent culture. And I think it's a terrific advantage for someone like you or, or me, where you kind of understand, like you have to be decent to people. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, totally. cause I know there's like a lot of our employees have crazy stories, like things you'd never believe that happened at previous places of work. So Unfortunately, do you ever catch yourself starting to live out some of those stories that you hear about other businesses or employers, like in a negative way? Uh, not very much, but where so where I play it out is in a lack of direction for the employees because I'm assuming that they have the same. I don't, I don't, I don't want to say drive because we have very driven people, but like the same level of tenacity or something for the business. Like, I'm kind of like, well, they'll figure that out. Cause it's like, no, you have to like, you have to develop something for them to work within. So I don't, I, I think 
I am, I become like so hands off and let like the cream rise to the top that for some people I like, I feel badly about some people that have, that we let go or that left the company because I didn't give them the training to excel in their role and they were probably decent people, but also without lack of like guidelines, we also unfortunately had some pretty awful people that we like, it was kind of like, if these people stay, it's going to ruin it for everyone. And so I, I, yeah, I think the biggest, we have a a lady that our, our operations director or director of operations, I think she likes to say it the other way. She was in the military and that's been immensely helpful because there's so much structure in the military. Mm-hmm. And that's something that humans need. Like we need structure. We can't just be like given a blank slate. I mean, there might be the odd artists that can be given that, but anyway, yeah. sorry, that was a weird way to answer your question, but I don't think I ever go into being like malicious or like, I don't get angry really with any of our employees. I like, sometimes I'll get a little bit frustrated, but I think if anything, like I, they'll lack direction. That'd be where I air is just like a lack of direction like well they can just figure that out and it's like no they need a little more information before they can figure it out i think i've had the same experience where employees have shared experiences from previous businesses or places they worked and two common things are one is they're not heard and communication just basic communication which you're alluding to already so something is said or something is assumed and it's assumed they understand it and boss doesn't communicate it well or the owner doesn't communicate it well and it just leads to confusion. Yeah, we have a guy right now working for us that he's showing me, not intentionally, I don't think it's intentional, showing me a side of the business that I need to give more attention to, which is we talk about a strong culture, but if I'm not doing these things, then our culture isn't really strong and he's not being heard. And I keep thinking, like the last little while we've been talking about, okay, someday we're going to sell this business. What are we actually selling? We're claiming we have culture. If we claim we have processes, do we actually have it? If I don't listen to this guy or listen to the other people. And so it's, it's almost like I'm trying to take a step back from my own business and like more so look at it like from a buyer's perspective. Someday, is there actually something there? And if I'm not listening to them, then really there isn't something there. Yeah, that's the communication part. That's interesting. I I do want to get into like more technical of the building. Obviously, you and I have an interest in like the psychology maybe of uh, business. But to your point about the communication, I've had a wild year and a half learning about myself and some of the totally stupid things that I do communication wise. (laughs) Like, and, and that's... I'm really glad we we have some staff members that will really speak up and be like, hey, this is super annoying. You got to stop this. And we've developed some one particular thing out of the book, Traction, the issues list has been a game changer for us. We don't do everything at Attraction, but that issues list and the way we do our meetings is amazing. I used to just like send text messages or like whatever about like, here's an issue or here's an idea. And everyone's like, are we doing this now? Because... I think also as like a relatively new business owner, you don't realize that you have hired these people to kind of do what you want. And so when you're just throwing stuff out, they're like, what the heck? Are we just switching gears right now? And it's like, oh, no, I was just and it is honestly kind of embarrassing. It's like dopamine hits. It was like something I would do for dopamine. And I'm embarrassed to say it, but thankfully they called me out on it. It was like three or like kind of a long time, a bad habit. And I got called out on it. And it's been the best thing for my stress, the best thing for our team meetings. It's crazy. It's like totally transformative. Oh, I have something I'd like to bring it up, throw on the issue list and you come to it. And we, of course, if it's an urgent like customer matter or something, we talk about it. But anyway. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. You can't discuss or spitball or shoot the breeze ideas with employees like in certain contexts yes but they will again structured context yeah 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 that's fascinating that before yeah and and an employee will latch onto something and bring it up the next day so was i supposed to do that or it's like oh sorry i really should be talking to to landon about that not about you (laughs) yes yeah Yeah. right yeah no it's and i just had to learn that i 100% plead ignorant like I didn't know and 
that's interesting. You've had a similar thing. So something that I've noticed, well, I'd like to know, I like how Oxbox and maybe it's you, I don't know who's doing it, but like your written content on your social media, on your website, the writing itself is very authentic and I find it really good. So I was curious about that. I kind of wanted to ask a little bit about acquiring customers, you know, sales and marketing, but I wondered about that. Is there like someone specializing in that or is that kind of a vibe that both you and Landon have in that writing? So in particular, you had a post when you were hiring, probably from a year or more ago, and it was super, it wasn't like cut and paste from an HR, like it was like, this is what we're looking for. And it was very personally written. It wasn't like, you know, we're looking for a motivated team member that blah, blah, blah. Like it was like authentic to Oxbox. And so I was curious, it's maybe kind of a strange thing to notice, but I'm sure other people notice it. Yes, a few people pointed that out as well. Um, so <laughs> I'm the type that will say, hey, do you want a job? This is the job, this is the pay, and show up. And apparently that doesn't work. And that's not good culture. So yeah, Landon had the idea of, of writing that more extended job posting. And then we used it for, I think, two or three postings, tweaked it according to the position. And then we've just, we haven't used that particular text again, but we've had tried to repeat that kind of expression of feeling around caring for the person who we're hiring. Going back to the writing, we did have a copywriter that did some stuff for us. They influenced some stuff. There was an art director that influenced some stuff. Landon's a great writer. I do a lot of spelling mistakes, so I'm not a great writer. <laughs> I have Instagram police that tell me when I've made an error grammarly. <laughs> so I don't know. I try to keep it when, so I do the social media. I just try to keep it as personal as I can, but at the same time professional. Sure. So acquiring customers, COVID was obviously good for these types of businesses. And you started in 2018. So you started before COVID. Initially, was it difficult to acquire customers? Have you found, is it kind of an ever-changing or is it kind of come to, like, I think the best way is just like word of mouth is probably always the best way to acquire customers. But like, you have to start somewhere. Can you walk through how you started to market sales to gain customers to how it's maybe transformed over over time? Yeah. To be honest, I don't know 100% how we acquire customers. But what I can say is, like you said, word of mouth is is a big part of it. The sales cycle, the actual sales cycle is typically well over six months before somebody sees Oxbox. And then when they really uh, dive into it, like we'll go back into messages and see, oh man, they, they reached out a long time ago. They were just like, just gain little bits of information. We did a little bit of online like ad spend. We've dialed back, back quite a bit because what we noticed when we had a really low budget is the right people were finding us with with like with keywords, I guess, finance through the website and word of mouth. One of the tactics to getting somebody to like commit is if they're anywhere close to like they're on the fence, I guess, and but you think they're kind of leaning towards purchasing or or uh, becoming a customer, is we have to get them in front of the product. So now that we have product kind of all over the place, we get them and the clients that are willing to show their Oxboxes, we can get them to one of their sites and then they'll speak to the product or they come to the shop. And it's almost 100% guarantee that they'll, they'll purchase at that point, which is to me crazy, but kind of what we wanted anyway the product is for itself yeah i think that's kind of the long-term success of any businesses you know unfortunately the population is so big you can maybe kind of produce a bad product and get away with it but i don't think it's as fun because i think you have a lot of customer confrontations but it, it seems like the most sustainable way to stay in business is to have a good product and yeah. people talk about it so initial design was this something you and landon sat down and kind of work through obviously you have added a lot to it but the design process is probably ever changing a bit but you have like a specific look was that developed rather quickly or like did um yeah it was actually like i just well it started off with function 
and then form. And then obviously there's inspiration, whether you do it consciously or unconsciously, you pull inspiration from other places. The design, you might not see it changing too much from box to box, but it actually do, it changes quite a bit. And it's more so behind the walls or in little tiny details. There's something that probably changes on every box. And that comes from the whole team. So whether, and we, I consider maybe even customers as part of the team because they give us feedback and we ask them for feedback. And so they might have something that is probably function that's going to change. The guys in the shop are going to have something, which I think is just most companies, but uh, they have something of process or material that's going to change. I'm going to have something that is usually uh, visual, that it's marketable and visually attractive and appealing. And then we, we have design that's related to our processes. So whether it's the transport, the install, yeah. Right, those. to fit, to make it work with everything. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So initially, did you have to worry about, like, obviously both of you, construction backgrounds, so you kind of have a industry knowledge of, of good construction practices. When it comes to the structural portion of, you know, ensuring that doesn't fall down, meeting building code. Did you initially work with an engineer to develop, you know, load abilities of the roof, the walls, all that? Or was that something that came after and you had to implement into the design or evaluate the design later? Yeah, we didn't actually have to, we didn't involve an engineer until probably 10 or 15 buildings in, maybe even more. It was when we had to do a product that was for uh, CSA, which is essentially a Canadian standard oh, yeah. of okay. products. I'm not sure what it is in the States. Anyway, yeah, so we had, like, the, the we actually overbuilt the structures first. So as far as loads and all that, the engineers didn't really change too much. We actually find the engineers over-engineering stuff right now, which is really frustrating. <laughs> but yeah, we had most of it, just from experience, already solved. And I would say that in some aspects, the first Oxboxes we built were possibly stronger as a whole than the ones we build now. Oh, interesting. Like we've, one thing we've always done is made the floor extremely, extremely strong. And those have improved. The rest of the structure, though, has improved in other areas, but I wouldn't say in structural integrity. They're already super strong. We're actually going to do a test on one of the buildings out in the shop and pick up one of the corners and just see if we can find any deflection in the whole building. The guys have moved it a little further ahead in construction than I was anticipating, but we're going to try this test. So when it comes to like manu you're manufacturing a, a building essentially within a building <laughs> in your facility, optimizing materials is a big part of the game, obviously. Probably doesn't, probably not why you do certain things, but maybe influences some of your design. Do you buy mill direct lumber and like have very specific sizes of, of framing lumber that you use and sheeting and all, everything else? And it's large quantity. How did you, how did you start and how has that changed sourcing uh, your raw materials? We, well, originally our buildings were stick framed. So it was dimensional lumber and dimensional lumber and plywood essentially was the structure and then spray foamed for insulation. Now we use uh, dimensional lumber plus SIP panels, which are structurally insulated panels, and LVL members and steel. So there's more components added. What was the question? Well, did you originally just basically start going down to the lumber store or the hardware store? Oh, I see. Get what you need, build it, and now you've developed relationships with suppliers that can wholesale, essentially, or on a larger scale at it. Yeah, some of that really hasn't changed. What, like, we did do that. We went down to the, the lumber store. It was right basically next door to our shop. They would drop off a package of lumber. It was, like, per model. The budget was not right. <laughs> we didn't have yeah. uh, tons of inventory. It wasn't until like uh, actually not that long ago, maybe a couple of years ago or less, that we started purchasing more lifts of lumber, which is super efficient and convenient. And then yeah, we use six panels. I want to show you lift the screen up. So that building behind me is all structurally insulated panels. So that's a piece of blue painted OSB that would represent 
one panel. And those are, there's zero waste with those because we ordered those panels exact to size for what we need. Oh, interesting. So you're not framing those panels. They come and then you join them. We join them. We do the electrical chases. Yeah, it's a bit of assembly. So that structure itself, the walls took a day and a half. And so they're insulated and framed all at, uh, all in one shot. And then the roof will go on. It'll be done majority today. And then it's back framing. So the assembly, there's, yeah, it goes very, very fast. But yeah, there's uh, yeah no waste with that. Yeah. Interesting. So that's a good segue into the assembly component. Uh, how many different trades or processes does an Oxbox, a typical Oxbox, go through? Like plumbing, electrical, obviously the structure. Like to me, that's like the overwhelming component for me because I'm like, we do the structure essentially. We don't even paint nothing. You have seemingly a number of trades involved in. in because it's a dwelling, like it's yeah. not for livestock so, like ours. Right. We have our in-house, I'd call them finishers before I'd call them framers, but they're essentially carpenters and they do most things except for we have an in-house electrician. He's the only one who touches the electrical. Then we sub out plumbing, tile, and in this next ox box, there'll be HRV, so mechanical. And that's it. I see. So we can do everything else ourselves. Okay. Is it all finished interiors with like some sort of tongue and groove or shiplap or something? It's, there's no sheetrock, like no drywall? No. Yeah, that's a decision because for transportation and, and craning. Flex, right. No, but we believe that there could be cracks developed from transportation. Having said that, um, yeah, I don't mean to toot our horn, but we do build like the floor is extremely strong, like I said. And every time the crane operators lift or the shipping companies move the buildings, they're always shocked of how rigid they are. So we might be able to do drywall and painting someday, but that's just another process that we haven't really become comfortable with with the downtime, essentially, of waiting for somebody else to do those trades. And we're not that big of a facility in the sense like, it's not a huge production line where somebody's on drywall or someone's on painting nonstop where there's a painting booth. We don't have that. So we actually don't do, just like you guys, we don't do any painting. Yeah. yeah it, I feel like you have to be doing some serious sales volume to start justifying like painting and all the hazmat and everything that goes with it. It feels pretty intense. Like the companies that I know that do it are big, big businesses. So as far as the individuals assembling the product, have you found that there's like an experience or, or or a type of background that people will fit better in the shop or are they tradesmen from construction and it seems like a good opportunity or are you training guys that have no experience? Like, is there uh, guys or gals that who's attracted to working in, you know, that kind of it's construction but it's not well the people who are attracted especially this time of year are people who are sick of the rain no that was a joke but it is <laughs> we say we'd rather a finisher than a framer to build the ox boxes relative to a framer uh, doing the finishing carpentry so being that it's a product it's a csa approved product and it has to be the same essentially built the same follow-up process each time. And plus our materials, like I've got a lot of lists of pre, like I pick from the list of materials that I want to purchase. It has to be built the exact same each time. And in typical construction, residential construction, I don't know if I've ever been on a house that was exactly as the plan said. So we're trying to to make the buildings exactly the same. I know each time it has to be nine foot nine wide framing to framing. I can just walk into the shop, look at that. And the guys know that now too. And so a framer typically won't care where a finisher will. And so that's the type that we generally want. And we have had people come in that were green and fresh and they either didn't last or, yeah, we had to find a new position for them because it was a lot of 
Yeah, you think it's easy, but it is actually a lot of a huge learning curve. Well, I do know the look of the Oxbox. I've never seen one in person, but just from the pictures, it's so clean and smooth. Like you wouldn't want some hack in there with a chainsaw putting together your product. Like it just that would like I don't think it would work for the customer. Like it, it you know, it's not like the building a rustic, build your own log cabin up, you know, in the woods. It's very finished. Very smooth. We had a guy in here that was not careful. And his position, when we had a large team, he could kind of blend in and fit in. But whenever it was, we were smaller, uh, his, his lack of care really, really showed. And so at one point, we had a, a measuring stick of, like, he had to report to me at the end of the day how many times he bumped something. And I know that sounds crazy. But it actually made his conscience, like he, he stopped bumping stuff, but it was just his tendency. Anyway, he didn't last for various reasons. I think that was like a foreshadow of the rest of his character as well. But you kind of treat everything like the boxes are treated like we say it's like a sleeping baby. You don't want to bump it. You don't want to pull it. You don't want to squeeze it. Everything is like gentle <laughs> and it's lifted from the bottom. Yeah. Do you think that a lot of things start, like we say, at the top or whatever. And you and I have talked about quality in the past. Quality is obviously very important to you. Do you think that there's individuals in the shop? They're like, this is Oxbox. This is what they represent. I'm turning the quality up. And if you were like, ah, this is kind of a slap together, like they could turn the quality down. Like, do you think human beings are, or do you think they're just naturally like this person's more attentive to detail while considering production? And then, you know, there's kind of that production versus detail and knowing the happy medium, is that something you can really lead with? Or do you think you ha- that's more of a hiring like for people that have those qualities? I think people can turn it up, but turning it down once it's high is hard, like really hard. Because you're compromising on your quality values, I guess. And I just speak from experience. I can turn it up to meet some of the guys on our team, but them to turn it down to meet a speed or a, like a deadline is almost impossible. That's like pulling teeth. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Our crew, I think, all have a Hispanic heritage, and half would be uh, have immigrated from Mexico, and they're very attentive to what like the boss wants, and they're very conscientious of money. Like if they're costing the business a lot of money, so. They'll be extremely productive. And one thing that we found in our quality, our salespeople would be like, hey, we want this display model. And so everyone's going to see it. And so they would just make it look beautiful. And then the next time we're like, this isn't the same as the display model. <laughs> and and they try to save materials, try to be very conscious of material savings, which our product is not an ox box as far as finishing. But I had to actually tell them like just make everything like those displays that you made and they're like oh okay and then then our quality was that way and they were just super conscious of like and i think that's a bit of a cultural thing like you don't waste you just do not waste and that would seem wasteful to them to throw that bit of lumber away that didn't look quite right or whatever and and so that was a bit of a mindset shift in our shop. Like that was okay to do that because our customer that's paying all this money, when it shows up, it better look basically perfect. And so it's interesting how they turned it up. They could easily turn it up, but they were they were looking out for the business. Like that was their intention. Yeah. And so it's really interesting that communication part. Yeah, it's amazing that you have that. So we have one guy in particular who he has a really, really, really almost impossible time putting any value ahead of quality. So that could be time. It could be like a deadline, essentially (laughs) compromising on something that's maybe not even seen so that you can achieve the the budget or the timeline. And and you try to push him to go faster and it actually makes him go slower. It's just so he's kind of learned, we've kind of learned just to like get out of his way and because he does produce amazing stuff. It's just, you're not going to get, you know what you're going to get and you, you value that. <laughs> yeah, that is, it's an interesting thing. And something we talk about is the things that really matter 
unfortunately, a customer isn't educated on, you know, the structural components and whatever, they'll notice the non-structural stuff and be like, oh, that doesn't look very good. Or they'll notice if something doesn't function properly. But it's always like, like in our case, welding, it's like if the welder did a great weld, it's hidden somewhere. No one knows, but it's like holding the entire thing together. But someone will fuss about like a finished thing. And so a lot of it sometimes is in our own conscience, we have to take care of the quality of like the the integrity of the structure. And then that's taking care of the customer. They don't really know it. And then you go and take care of like the things that are seen and, you know, that isn't going to kill someone and it falls apart or whatever. So can you talk a little bit about delivery, how, how that, how Oxbox is delivered and if it's kind of the same every time? Yeah, it is pretty much the same every time. We roll the buildings out of the shop, crane it onto a trailer and or flat deck truck we've done it saying but yeah usually onto a trailer and delivered to site and craned off the trailer so how it went on is how it goes off and it's lifted from the bottom like a the same like a sleeping baby so nothing is is squeezing or pulling on the box it's all just kind of cradled and then you have to design the foundations around that those straps so that those straps can come out and it's all done. Yeah, and then those straps never put pressure on the sides of the building either. There's, they have to be straight up. So use a spreader bar above the building that makes the straps. So And the spreader bar has to be, yeah, it's exactly 10 feet. I think I did it once with a crane operator that had a spreader bar that was way too wide. And man, it was sketchy. <laughs> the building just like kind of, whatever side was the heaviest, which was actually... It was more glass on one side, or it was just out of balance a little bit. And the whole thing just like sat sideways. It never damaged anything. It was fine. But it was... And there was another time we had sent a building to California, and they treated it... I call it like a, a block of wood going into a dumpster. It was crazy. Got a video of this. These guys... Yeah, essentially, it looked like Bob the Builder picking up this box with his little slings and his little crane and they were bumping into power lines, the fence, the house. The guys were pushing on it with two by fours. It was it was bad. They didn't have a guide wire. Anyway, the worst part was the contractor was so confident that he knew what he was doing before and so he tried to teach him how to do it. He's like, no, no, I got this. And anyway, long story short, we ended up sending a signing package down to California because <laughs> they destroyed it. <laughs> oh no. So do you contract those cranes and the delivery? Like do you have another business come in and, and like do you sub that out? Every time for crane for delivery, we've been doing the smaller buildings ourselves and then anything over sixteen feet somebody else delivers. So yeah, we're and we're probably going towards contracting deliveries moving forward just because of the overhead the hassle of the insurance and commercial stuff. So on those that you sub out the delivery, is there an Oxbox like direct employee that goes to site as much as possible? Or like what's the frequency of that? Is there sometimes it have like one of you have to go or can the subcontractors handle it? Yeah. So I think we've used subcontractors maybe eight or ten times. It's not very often out of all the installs, maybe not even that much. Um, so typically we go wherever the box goes. Yeah, but, and the times that, like the California job or, or the jobs that we've done down the States or even Ontario, except for the one California job, we just communicated a ton with the contractor at a time. And actually my father-in-law and brother-in-law were the contractors for a few of the jobs in the States, and now they can just do installs without our help anytime they want it. So, so that California one, would a customer be willing to like have a project manager fly and make sure everything was good? Like, like, or is that kind of cost prohibitive? Like, or is that a sensitive cost? Yeah, it is an extra cost that you wouldn't have, or not an extra cost, but it is a cost that you would never see on a, like if it was a site build. So they sometimes have a hard time paying for something like that. But in a project coming up, Landon and I will be going to California for an install because it's it's actually super complicated. It's it's two houses, two buildings plus a huge pergola, and there's a whole bunch of connections on site. 
we don't think we're there's like no, no plan to hire somebody else to do it. We think we can do it on our own. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll be going to Calgary. You want to join us? <laughs> well, maybe I'm not far away right now, so I'm in Arizona, so it wouldn't be far to get there. We actually might have another one in uh, Reno coming up. So oh yeah, come join. Yeah. It would be cool to see for sure. Uh, how, do, how do the windows like, is there anything special? The windows, are they anything special? Like as far as being that they're in this manufactured building and being shipped with a crane and all the rest? No, um, you could ship any type of window. I think the only thing you'd have to worry about is something like slider. If your building was flexible, like a mobile home. <laughs> so those tend to pop out for, for, um, mobile home movers. However, we we use uh, like European style multi-point locking windows and doors and it's never been an issue. I see. Uh, so the one thing about our windows is we do have to, when we get to site, um, and there's like a hundred different ways of manipulating the window once it's casing. And so once you get to site, set it on the foundation, there's sometimes a little bit of I usually call it settling, but I think it's just shifting during transportation. You have to just tweak it a little bit. I see. That's interesting. You're using that that European windows. That I I my father in law has like a bunch of fine home building magazines and like timber frame magazines. And I was reading one and it's actually pretty enjoyable to read, but they were talking about the European windows are like compared to American windows are ten times better like way better is that why you're using them it's a superior product um generally yeah um the cost is 10 times as much too no um right it's i think what we found with with at the price point that we're buying our windows at is the details are generally really nice to work with and consistent so we there's one thing we don't have is trim in our so there's no window trim uh, there's no moldings along the bottoms of the walls or anything. So, and our windows are floor to ceiling. So, those windows have to be perfect for us to make our details perfect. And yeah, so the welds are usually really nice in the corners, clean, nice surfaces to work with, consistent. Yeah, we did try another manufacturer recently. It was a complete flop. The the guys they would probably quit if I used them again. The price was good, but then their the details they just totally missed on <laughs> But yeah. The the multi point locking makes them seal up really, really nice. Um we have we have to meet step code here in BC, which is like an energy efficiency measuring stick. And these windows are pretty good for that. So I don't want to keep you too much longer. I got a few more questions. One is I mean, I feel like we should talk more about the actual manufacturing process, but these questions aren't that. So maybe if we're if we feel like it, we can go into that. But these are two kind of questions that are maybe I'll ask this question first. The flat roof. How how does it shed water? Maybe that's a proprietary secret. <laughs> no, no secrets. Um, it's not flat. So visually from the outside is flat, but and because the top of the walls are all the same, but that essentially has a curb around the roof. And then there's a quarter inch over 12 inches of slope towards a concealed downspout or on the smaller models, the downspout is actually outside the outspouts. Okay, so there is a downspout that it feeds into. Yeah, but unlike this model that I've just shown you, you'd never be able to see the downspout. It's tucked away inside. Sure. So I find that in my own experience, there's like whack-a-mole in the manufacturing business, especially when you're selling, you're, you're manufacturing, but you're also selling your product. But like the sales team will be killing it or sales in general is just going great. And then you're trying to keep up on delivery, on production and then delivery. Like there's always like one of those popping up. It's like the manufacturing process will pop up because there's some like we just our CNC went down. So it's kind of the bottleneck. And then and then production and delivery, you're looking at sales like, hey, guys, like we need you to get going. Is there a part of the business that comes far more naturally that you're like, I really thrive in this? And then there's parts that's like, I am not that great at that. Me, myself, or the business itself? You as an individual. Oh, anything hands-on, I'm more natural. So, and I'd say our team, because we're more manufacturers than we are admin or 
leadership, generally manufacturing comes easy for most of the team. Trying to figure out how to sell what we're selling is uh, it's a constant learning. But yeah, I don't get involved with the sales too much. I sell, I, I say that my role is like selling 5% or maybe less of what our sales are. So Landon brings the client in, he makes the majority of the sale. And then my job is, part of my job is to kind of elevate that sale and just tell, like kind of keep bringing value to the client. But that doesn't come natural. <laughs> and the clients can... Do they have a pretty open slate on what they want to design or do you kind of have blocks that you're like, you can choose this or that? It's like a building blocks rather than whatever you want. We'll just do it. I'm sure there's design parameters they have to be within. Yeah. So we have five models that we, we've pre-designed, know the price of, know all the details of the drawings for. Beyond that, I'd say like, so I forget what the numbers are, but something like five or 15% of people will want exactly what we're selling. They don't want to change a thing. Then there's a large majority will want one or two or three customizations. So it's like add a window, I don't know, something unique to their property. And then there's like 25% want something completely custom. And I'd say like a few of those projects actually go through because those can get really carried away. But like for this California job coming up, it's custom, very, very custom. And we're doing a lot of extra things like for, um, this pergola that expands the two ox boxes and going pretty extreme. But it's still very much an ox box. Like you can, if you look at it, you're like, oh, that's obviously an ox box. So in the manufacturing process, do you kind of separate out? You're like, hey, we've got a bunch of orders of some very regular product that the team is like, they can just hammer out and then you like separate like more of the hey there's a few more intricacies or is it kind of the same line always or kind of the same process always like there it's really enjoyable when it's a standard box because there's very little communication required and then when it's customizations it's some somebody moved a sink they moved something that or yeah that's when i get or i have to do a special framing detail that usually leads to a lot more conversations and stops and starts and stops and starts. So something I really like what you guys do, you have like a, I think you told me about, and I read it on your website, like a, a customer fit call, like to see if you fit. I'm kind of, I have actually thought about calling and being a customer and see if I fit. <laughs> but I, I really like it because uh, you do need customers that fit who you are. But if, if I were to call, well, well, maybe... Can you answer that? Kind of what is that? Is it just making sure the customer understands what's all going to happen? If they're not very understanding of it, it's not going to work. Have you ever denied a customer? Or? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we've, we, we, it's, we call it a discovery call now. Because fit seemed to, it was fine, it worked. But discovery is more, it's less scary, I guess, for uh, a client. So, yeah, they call, uh, it's, it's a scheduled time. And usually just learn if they're, they can afford what they're after. If we can get it into their property, that's a big, big hurdle. Sometimes you can't get close enough with a crane and they just understand what our process is. And if it usually by the end of that 15 minutes, it's like, okay, what we can do is create a scratch pad estimate for you, for you, what you're looking for. And it's very, very high level. We call it like a 15-minute scratch pad estimate. And so we produce maybe one or two or three of those a day. And then out of those, that really qualifies the person. So they're like, okay, that doesn't scare me. The price is reasonable. You kind of outline all the details of a project. Maybe there's custom fees. Maybe there's... And it, it is, it's just another qualifying tool without spending too much time. <laughs> right, right. So if I were to call get on a call, I can afford it and everything. And I just asked you like in one or two sentences, like why should I buy an Oxbox over having someone build it on site or through a mobile? Why wouldn't I buy a mobile home? Like why buy an Oxbox is the question, I guess. Like why would I do that? I can afford it, but like why would I do that? Besides the fact that I just like how it looks. Right. <laughs> I guess 
one thing I would ask you, and I'm not a salesperson, don't get me wrong, or don't don't confuse me on the question. Um, I'd ask you, uh, why did you come to us in the first place? Right. So I it, I really liked the aesthetic design of it. And I liked not the, the idea of not having on-site construction for months and maybe not maybe feeling like it's more of a trustworthy source where you're like, oh, that's what I'm getting. Whereas you hire a contractor, maybe you don't. I mean, obviously you would vet them to maybe look at their past work. But I think the next thing I'd ask you is, so you do have experience with a contractor and the, the kind of the pain points of working with a contractor. Usually the answer is yes. And they they recognize like they lost control of a portion of their house or the portion of their property or driveway for a little while. The neighbors were a little bit upset for whatever reason. And then beyond that, yeah, I don't know what else. Beyond that. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I guess the, the one other thing is stability of of the price. What you what we said in the contract right, is what you're right. We've never gone over that unless you've changed something. That makes sense. I honestly think, I mean, even for us, we, I mean, we, in some ways we're in a similar lane, obviously we're a totally different product, but we have found so many people like are saying, well, we know what to budget for. And I, I just keep telling our employees and we're all in agreement. Like there's nothing worse than going to the dealership for, to buy a car. And you're like, it's 20,000. Yeah. It's 20,000. And it's like, yeah, it's going to fit. And then it's like, by the time you are done it's 26,000 it's like well i thought you said well yeah we've got this fee and that fee and it's like why didn't you just say that to begin with you didn't just say this is listed at 20,000 but there'll be these fees to get there and so we've that's in our business model it's just like we we tell you what it costs and that's what it costs like there's no oh by the way cuz there's nothing worse for a feeling when you've bought something you're committed and then it's like Oh, just kidding! You don't actually know. I don't. I don't even think it's the money. I think it's the surprise. No one likes the surprise of that. Yeah, you're hundred percent. So, what? Where do you display that price? For us in our business, yeah. Um, we on our website, we actually have an e-commerce site built now, and so people can buy. There's like, it, it took a bit to build the shipping calculator because obviously you're shipping down the road, and there's like a caveat if there's like ferries and whatever. There, there be a dish. You don't have to talk to a salesperson but we post everything and the e-commerce will calculate what the additional shipping is but of course we're not creating our buildings you know there's we're, we have more control over a lot of our variables there's very not we're getting into more foundations so we're starting to build bigger but usually when people start spending over thirty thousand, they're not they're going to talk to you first before just buying it online but yeah you wish it, it was as easy as buying something off of Etsy or Amazon, but it's not. It's a big investment for people and they, they have to uh, you have to gain their trust. Maybe you've already gained it if they've been following you for a while, but usually there is some element of gaining their trust. Yeah, abs- absolutely. I know we've had repeat customers come in on Monday and they've ordered two sheds paid for them online. There's been, there's been actually in our, in our, like we, our cheapest building is like 5,000. And so this fall, we did see like just a lot of people just go and buy inventory right, right then and there. So it works in those situations, like the lower cost. But we've, I think we've had even 20000 spent with someone we've never talked to, which is more rare. But they obviously have, for some reason, they've trusted us. You know, I you know maybe have a friend that has one or that's a specific type of personality that is willing to do that, obviously. But yeah, well, I think... Uh, I could probably ask you a bunch more questions, Morgan, but I, I think that's... Uh, we should uh, we could record one of our phone conversations one of these times. You have a specific... <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it is funny how that is. There's a handful of people that I'll call when having a very specific issue and every time that gets brought up, like this should be recorded because it's probably like other people have this very specific problem. And I know there's a lot of podcasts that could be recorded out of just generic phone calls. You know, just for your own insight, whenever we do have those conversations, it's very, very helpful for me because I usually, well, something I haven't identified or you help me to remember how much work has gone into this company. And sometimes you just kind of forget. You just like, ah, what do we have? Like, 
if you're feeling down or like unproductive, it's like, man, what are we, what are we doing? And then one of those questions, like, can be a complete reminder of all the efforts that's gone into just a portion of the company. No, it, it it's amazing. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you.